Hello, anesthesia enthusiasts, and welcome to Style Points. I'm your host, John Crow. I'm an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the University of Cincinnati. Today, we will be talking about liver transplant anesthesia. The University of Cincinnati is one of the top liver transplant centers in the country, ranked 17th in the United States by volume in 2022. Our residents do an average of 15 to 20 liver transplant anesthetics per resident per year, starting as early as their third month of CA1 year. Today, we have the good fortune of speaking with Dr. Courtney Jones, Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care and the Director of Transplant Anesthesia here at the University of Cincinnati. Courtney, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. What I like to do is start off with a question that's more of a get-to-know-you question. So, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, it could be even somebody from the past or even from fiction, who would you have dinner with and why? There are so many great possibilities. Um, I think it would be really fascinating to have dinner with Martin Luther, going way back to the 1500s. Um, but he is someone who um, had the intelligence and creativity to think outside of um, what was being taught at the time as accepted doctrine from um, the Catholic Church, and but then had the conviction of his um, of his beliefs and it led to the Protestant Reformation and changed history from there on. So someone with the um, intelligence and then also the um, uh, guts, so to speak, to kind of stand for their convictions. So I think he'd be a fascinating person to speak with. I agree. That'd be really interesting. I would also like to have that dinner. I wonder what we'd have for dinner. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure what German food in the 1500s <laughs> consisted of, but... <laughs> Can you start out by telling us a little bit about your background and experience in the field of anesthesia, particularly with liver transplant? Sure. Um, so as a resident, I always really enjoyed being in liver transplants. And at the time, um, they were a very different case by and large than they are now. The blood loss was much higher. The cases were longer and um, the rooms were very, very hot. Um, but despite that, I still enjoyed the challenge of the case and the resuscitation and the uh, satisfaction of taking care of a critically ill patient and that feedback of um, how well you did taking care of the patient um, in their post-operative course. Um, and from there, as I became an attending and was involved in the liver team and critical care, um, I enjoyed it even more and then attended um, a critical care conference that had a side meeting on uh, liver pathology and liver diseases and then also went to um, a coagulation conference on uh, coagulopathy and liver disease and um, and also hypercoagulability. So those two things really sparked my intellectual interest as well to um, highlight even more the complexities of the pathophysiology of cirrhosis and the differences between cirrhosis and acute liver failure and um, ultimately continued on the liver team and um, whenever the previous director was ready to step down I took over as the director of transplant anesthesia and have loved it ever since. When I was a resident, I remember the first time that I went to do a kidney transplant and I got very excited and it was very stressful time for me, but then the kidney transplant sort of went okay and it ended up being just a pretty standard abdominal case. Could you tell me a little bit about the difference between a standard kidney transplant versus what a liver transplant involves? Sure. Um, 
first, I think they're both very satisfying cases. And one of my most favorite cases to do is a living donor kidney transplant. And one of the reasons um, that I love that case is the kidney starts working right away. And you can see the kidney making urine while you're still in the operating room, which is to me, just kind of mind-blowing and incredibly rewarding that you can take an organ out of one person and put it into another, and that person's life will be forever changed um, from a morbidity and a mortality standpoint. Um, for a kidney transplant, um, it's not as huge of a physiologic insult as it is for um, a liver transplant. Um, you have a smaller incision. Um, you're not immediately subdiaphragmatic, which has a higher respiratory complication rate. Um, there tends to be less blood loss, uh, but the patients are often sicker um, in the terms of more comorbidities. They're often diabetic, hypertensive, um, have been on dialysis for a long time, which leads to um, rapidly progressive coronary artery disease. They often have diastolic heart failure um, and um, post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. So the comorbidities that you deal with with kidney transplant um, are often more challenging and can contribute to the patient's long-term morbidity and mortality. But from an anesthetic standpoint, the, um, the surgical um, risk that you're undertaking is much less than a liver transplant. Um, you do not have as many fluid shifts. You do not have the, the blood loss. Um, the operative time is shorter. Um, for a liver transplant, um, I always anticipate um, a lot of blood loss. You're planning for at least um, four to eight hours in the operating room. It's usually closer to six to eight. Um, you have um, a significant amount of uh, fluid shifts that are happening if the patient has ascites, the portal hypertension, cirrhosis affects every organ system in the body. Um, so you have to account for the management of all of those uh, pathophysiologic implications in your anesthetic plan, which is something that makes it um, a fun challenge, in my opinion. Um, and I think there's so much to, to learn from taking care of patients with, uh, with liver disease because you really have to understand the implications throughout the, the body and um, help your patient have a good outcome by attributing um, for, for those things. So let's take a look at a liver transplant patient from start to finish, starting with preoperatively. What do we do here at the University of Cincinnati for liver transplant patients in the preoperative phase? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, a couple of years ago, we started um, a transplant CPC specifically. What's a CPC? Uh, CP Great question. CPC stands for Center for Perioperative Care, which is the name that we use here for our preoperative clinic. Um, and... We still have some transplant patients that come through the preoperative clinic, but we have embedded um, an anesthesiologist in the liver clinic um, on the day that they are being seen uh, immediately before listing. And that has a lot of advantages. Um, one of the largest is that you are in the same space as the hepatologist, the transplant surgeon, the social worker, the coordinators. Um, they're being seen by transplant ID that day, and then also um, the transplant uh, dietitian. So you have this uh, multidisciplinary clinic, which is a fantastic way to have good communication, um, tie up any loose ends or to um, discuss any discrepancies in the previous workup that's been done up to that point. Um, 
As far as testing for our patients before a liver transplant, um, everyone gets an echo with a bubble, um, and that is looking for um, systolic function, diastolic function, and very importantly, RV function. Um, the right ventricle is incredibly important to a successful liver transplant, both intraoperatively and then also postoperatively. We pay a lot of attention to the um, PA pressures um, as well. And then we're look, using the bubble to look at intrapulmonary shunts because hepatopulmonary syndrome is very common uh, in liver transplant patients. Um, most of the time it is not clinically significant, but uh, some of our patients will have very low PO2s and qualify for uh, what's called meld exception points. And that's when the severity of their disease is not accurately represented by their MELD score. Um, and they can get bonus po points, so to speak, on their MELD score to uh, improve their chances of receiving a liver transplant because something like hepatopulmonary syndrome can be improved with liver transplant. Um, we also do uh, a stress test of some variety on almost all of our patients um, that are going for liver transplant. Um, Sometimes it's a stress echo, sometimes it's um, a nuclear med stress test, and then um, we have a fairly low threshold for doing a left heart cath uh, for our patients. Um, and that depends on the etiology of the liver disease, the comorbidities um, that the patient has, and then uh, the reliability of the stress test. So the guidelines have recently changed from the American Heart Association for the workup of liver transplant patients. And NASH, which is now called MASH, Metabolic Associated Steatohepatitis, um, is an independent risk factor that automatically puts people in the high-risk category for having coronary artery disease. So those patients get screened with um, a coronary CT, and if that can't be interpreted, or if um, they can't undergo the test, or their coronary calcium score is high, then those patients um, it's recommended that they automatically get uh, a left heart cath because their pretest probability of having coronary artery disease is so high. Um, so we spend a lot of time looking at the heart um, and trying to anticipate um, the patient's reserve for with tolerating the stress of not just the immediate operative course, which can be significant, but also post-operatively um, because patients uh, after liver transplant have a high incidence of uh, arrhythmias, namely AFib, and then also uh, heart failure. Um, systolic and diastolic heart failure can be uh, a significant complicating factor postoperatively. Um, so we spend a lot of time looking at that, and then everything else is uh, dictated by the patient's comorbidities. If they have a long-term smoking history, asthma, COPD, then those patients are going to getting, be getting PFTs, maybe a CT, um, a high-res CT if there's concern for interstitial lung disease, but uh, they get a chest CT looking for um, any malignancy. They have abdominal CTs to help with operative planning. Patients undergo colonoscopy, EGD, um, among others, and then everything else is dictated by comorbidities. It sounds like there's a much bigger workup than even I was aware of for these liver transplant patients, and that's uh, pretty intense. Uh, with this multidisciplinary clinic, what have you noticed has changed in uh, what you're doing for these patients beforehand? What 
what do you think is the thing that has caught the most that you feel like the patients are benefiting from the most? Um, I think one of the things that helps them the most is just having um, continuity of communication. So instead of getting one message from whoever is seeing them in the pre-op clinic from anesthesia as happened before, and then they go to the liver clinic and see a hepatologist and then maybe the surgeon and everyone has a slightly different message that can be confusing for the patient, we are able to present a unified um, uh, plan for the patient, uh, which one is better for their understanding, it's better for uh, their buy-in and trust. Um, so I think that has been a huge advantage for the patients. The other nice thing just physically for the patients is they don't have to traipse across campus to come to the pre-op clinic. And these are patients who often um, have a lot of muscle wasting, uh, need canes or walkers for stability, uh, maybe even a wheelchair for longer distance, have uh, protuberant abdomens full of ascites that make them short of breath. So just from a patient experience standpoint, um, I think it has also been much better for them as well. So let's move from the pre-op area into the operating room. Uh, we all know that liver transplants are a big surgery. They require a lot of lines, but what's different in a liver transplant surgery that you might not see in a normal open abdominal procedure? from the anesthetic management standpoint? Sure. Um, I think from an anesthetic standpoint, um, one of the largest things that we are preparing for is blood loss. And if we don't experience the blood loss, that's fantastic for the patient. Um, but blood loss that you are prepared for is incredibly different than blood loss that you are not prepared for. And with the number of uh, varices in a cirrhotic patient with the blood supply to the liver itself, um, if they've had previous abdominal surgery, there can be significant adhesions that complicate the hepatectomy. Um, you have to be prepared for blood loss. So we put in a MAC catheter um, for all of our patients, which is a large bore central line that allows rapid transfusion. Um, and we have a rapid infuser called a Belmont that's hooked up to uh, that line um, that allows us to transfuse up to a liter a minute if we need to. Um, we also place a swan um, or a pulmonary artery catheter to monitor the PA pressures. Um, the CVP, we can shoot cardiac outputs from that, calculate the PVR. Um, not every center places uh, a swan for liver transplant. Um, some do it uh, on an as-needed basis, others do it for routinely, and then others do TEE only for their liver transplants. And some places will do a combination of the two. Um, we do swans for all of our livers with uh, TE on a more um, as-needed or indicated uh, basis. Um, in addition to the, um, to the MAC, we're also looking to place large-bore peripheral IVs. If we cannot place those, then we will place a second MAC to make sure that we have sufficient access for the case. Um, and then we are um, also putting in an arterial line. Um, to monitor the hemodynamics closely and be able to sample blood gases throughout the case. Some centers will put in two central lines, um, one to monitor the hemodynamics and the other for lab sampling. Um, we do not do that. We just put in one um, and have not felt 
that it's been a hindrance to our ability to continually monitor the patient. Um, but that is a difference that you'll see between some programs um, is that they'll put into arterial lines for every liver transplant. Um, and then sometimes our patients need CRRT in the operating room. We will do continuous dialysis in the operating room um, in certain circumstances. I think the patients that are hardest to manage without CRRT are the ones that are hyperkalemic, acidotic, um, and hyponatremic. Um, that combination of electrolyte abnormalities can be challenging to treat um, in a liver transplant while dealing with uh, the fluid shifts, blood loss, uh, hemodynamics that are happening during the transplant. Well, uh, there are definitely a lot of different aspects of liver transplant. I'm going to try to zoom out for a second. Could you describe some of the different phases of a liver transplant and what you'd look out for in sure. those phases in general? So the liver transplant is uh, starting with the hepatectomy, and that's when the surgeons are dissecting down and um, freeing up the liver to remove it. Um, when they first open the abdomen, if the patient has ascites, uh, you are doing a paracentesis. So if a patient has uh, a large amount of ascites, then you need to be prepared to treat it like a large volume paracentesis and have albumin replacement uh, for the ascites loss that's going to happen um, because that can make the patient hypotensive from the very beginning. Um, during the hepatectomy, there can be uh, a fair amount of blood loss depending on um, many different factors. So that's something that we're watching for and prepared to treat um, as well. Um, and in that phase, we're trying to have an adequate depth of anesthetic. Uh, patients often uh, do not need nearly as much anesthesia with liver disease, um, especially if they have hepatic encephalopathy. Um, you can usually get by with much less uh, anesthetic. Um, and some of our patients need pressors even this early on um, because of their low tone uh, that they have at baseline. It's not uncommon for some patients with cirrhosis to have systolic blood pressures in the 80s and 90s um, at baseline, which can make um, tolerating an anesthetic on top of that uh, a little challenging without adding some, some pressor for tone. Um, so that's something that we always have ready and prepared um, at the start of the case. Um, and then you move on to the anhepatic phase after the, the liver is out. Um, and sometimes what uh, medical students and residents will lose sight of is that when you're anhepatic, you have lost all the function that the liver normally does for you in that time period. Um, so you are not making uh, your coagulation factors. You're not uh, having gluconeogenesis. You're not clearing lactate. Um, so all of those things are contributing to some of the physiologic effects that you see during that, that phase. Um, and then uh, you're moving from uh, the anhepatic phase, you are preparing for reperfusion, which is the uh, most hemodynamically uh, rocky time of the, the transplant. Um, while the patient is anhepatic, the surgeons are working on sewing in the new liver. Um, and this is called the warm ischemia time for the new liver. They try to keep that as short as possible. Um, it's usually in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 minutes, um, sometimes slightly longer. Um, but the more warm ischemia time on the organ, uh, the worse it is for the, the new organ. So um, they try to minimize that. That's not a great time to um, interrupt the surgeons with 
lots of random questions and, and distractions. They're, they're working pretty fast during that time period um, and sewing tiny blood vessels and putting things together. Um, and while they are sewing in the, the liver, um, you are preparing for reperfusion. So you're getting your pressors ready. If um, you're, We usually load the Belmont with um, blood or fluid, depending on what the patient's hemoglobin is and fluid status. Um, but you will have um, a huge physiologic insult with uh, reperfusion. So at this time, there are clamps on the IVC in the portal vein you have acid building up, potassium building up uh, in the body, um, and you're putting a cold liver that just came out of ice into the into the abdomen. So when they reperfuse, you are getting um, cold blood washed back to the heart. You're getting acid coming back to the heart. You're getting potassium coming back to the heart, and that is uh, why the right heart function is so important because all of those things. Um, make it uh, difficult for the right heart to to work at its normal capacity. In addition to that, the right heart doesn't tolerate sudden volume changes very well. And when you take the clamp off, um, the IVC in the portal vein, you have a large increase in preload back to the heart. So if your RV is struggling and you hit it with acid and potassium and cold and um, a huge volume bolus, then you can get into trouble really quickly. So while the surgeons are working to sew in the liver, uh, we are preparing for reperfusion. Uh, and then you move into reperfusion and all those things that I was just talking about can manifest as hypotension. You can have um, arrhythmias of any variety. You can have uh, asystole, you can have uh, bradycardia, you can have V-fib, you can have VTAC. You can have pauses, um, you can see peak T waves, you can see a widening QRS. Um, so you really have to be paying attention uh, to what's going on and what uh, you're seeing on your monitors at this time. Um, we try to manage the volume very carefully. Um, our surgeons will do a blood flush, so the patient will lose two to 300 mLs of blood very, very quickly at the start of reperfusion and you have to account for that, but then you're going to have all of the preload coming back from the clamps coming off to the heart. Uh, and you do not want to engorge the, the new liver with a high venous pressure. So you need adequate volume, but you don't want to overdo it. Um, and then uh, pressors are usually needed uh, during this time um, to varying degrees. And then after the liver is reperfused, you're in the neohepatic phase. Um, the surgeons are um, sewing in the hepatic artery. Um, they are cleaning up any blood loss that is uh, visible after the clamps come off. You can't always see uh, tiny holes whenever you have clamps on. Um, so they're repairing that. Um, and the liver starts to work. Um, it's really amazing. Even though this liver has been out of a body in ice with preservative fluid in it, um, it'll start to make bile. Your coagulopathy will start to get better. Your acidosis will start to get better. The lactate will start to clear, um, which is amazing to, to see. Um, and then the surgeons will also work on the bile duct um, after they get the hepatic artery um, sewn together. And one of the things that you really have to watch out for in this time period um, is intracardiac thrombus. So that can occur at any point during a liver transplant, um, but the highest risk time is about 10 to 15 minutes after reperfusion, after the clamps have come off. 
and that happens in about one to six percent of liver transplants and the mortality is really high uh, if that happens. So that's something that we're watching for and prepared to treat if it does occur. Um, and then the rest of the neohepatic phase is um, management of an open abdomen, uh, repairing um, any abnormalities in the coagulation cascade that occur. Uh, transfusion is needed for, uh, for blood loss. Um, usually during this period, uh, your presser requirement will come down as the liver starts to work and acidosis is improving. Um, replacing any electrolytes that are needed, um, managing the glucose uh, are all important parts of this phase of care for the anesthetic. We've talked a lot about turning the pressors on and off and when they might be needed. Which ones are you reaching for and why? Um, we typically will spike um, epinephrine, levofed, and vasopressin um, in our liver transplants as far as having those on the pump. If someone has um, some RV dysfunction, a lot of times we'll use dibutamine um, instead of epinephrine. Um, but those are kind of our go-tos here. There are other choices that are acceptable. Occasionally we'll use milrinone, but not often because of the vasodilatory effect that you can get from, from milrinone. Um, so levofed, epinephrine, and vasopressin are, are most commonly used agents. Um, as far as a push dose, uh, we typically have epi, uh, phenylephrine, and um, I personally like having push doses of levofed as well. Gotcha. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, that was an excellent overview, and I, I appreciate you going over that. Uh, moving on to post-operative care of the patient, what sort of things are you looking for when the patient hits the ICU and during their stay in the ICU? Um, there are a lot of things that are really important in this phase of care, and uh, it's a continuation of what's happening in the operating room. There's been a big push over the last several years in liver transplant to um, improve the rate of extubation in the operating room for patients. Um, there's still kind of this antiquated notion that patients need to rest on the ventilator um, after a big surgery. And we know that there's harm from patients being on a ventilator longer than necessary and um, increases the risk of uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, patients are in bed longer, they're on sedation, they have a higher risk of DVT. So that early post-operative phase is trying to move patients towards extubation if we were not able to do it in the operating room. It's also um, continuing to correct any abnormalities in the, uh, in the TEG, um, resuscitating the patient if they still need it from a volume or blood standpoint. Um, weaning off the pressors, and then uh, monitoring for the liver function. So you want to see the lactate continuing to come down. You want to see uh, the acidosis improving. Um, the LFTs will initially spike after a liver transplant, um, but you want to see those starting to trend down. Um, they get an early post-operative uh, ultrasound to look at flow uh, in the vessels in the liver itself um, and make sure that you have good flow in the hepatic arteries and veins. Um, and then just general good ICU care that includes early mobilization, DVT prophylaxis, pulmonary toilet, um, all of those things that are important for any patient. 
How long do these patients typically stay in the ICU? Of course, every patient's going to be mm-hmm. different. Sure. Um, so here are patients on average stay in the ICU about two to three days. Um, and the average um, hospital course for our patient is about seven to eight days um, after a liver transplant. There's obviously a lot of heterogeneity because you can have somebody coming in from home who is pretty functional and maybe having a liver transplant for um, cancer and they're not cirrhotic. That's a very different patient than someone who um, has acute liver failure and is obtunded and on the ventilator in the MICU before going to the OR. So there's a huge range, but average is two to three days in the ICU and about a week in the hospital. Um, Some places that have a little bit different structure of their floors and nursing ratios um, will bypass the ICU for patients who are extubated in the operating room. They might have a longer PACU stay or their um, post-transplant floor set up a little bit more like a step-down unit. So uh, there's some difference based on where the transplant's being performed. So in recent years, uh, what advancements or innovations within anesthesia or within liver transplant surgery have impacted the way that we do liver transplant procedures? One of the biggest changes is the uh, machine perfusion that's happening. Um, And it's been very common for years to put kidneys on a pump and you can um, delay the transplant of the kidney and it also has a little bit of a ability to um, improve some of the kidney function for some of the marginal grafts. Uh, there have been multiple studies, several different types of pumps that are in use. It was more common in Europe initially um, and you're seeing them more in the United States now. Um, but the ability to machine perfuse a liver before putting it into a patient um, expands the ability to use uh, DCD grafts, which are um, graph organs that come from um, a cardiac death instead of a brain death. Those organs are typically um, not quite as good as a brain death organ. Take a little longer to work, but you can see uh, better uh, function from those grafts and the ability to use more marginal grafts to improve the donor pool. Um, so that's one of the big changes that's occurring. Um, The machine perfusion is still not widespread, not used for every organ. Um, There still tends to be need for IRB approval and things like that. Um, But I think that's something that will continue to change in the years to come. So what advice would you give to anesthesia residents or medical students who are new to or interested in specializing in liver transplant anesthesia? First of all, I would say that's fantastic and uh, I do not think you'll be disappointed in choosing that as a career specialty. Um, For the medical students, I would encourage you to get as much exposure to a multidisciplinary approach to transplant patients as you can. For example, when you're on your internal medicine rotation trying to rotate with hepatology if possible, or on your surgery rotation trying to sorry, trying to rotate with transplant surgery um, will give you a more complete picture of these patients and what their perioperative course looks like and how you move someone from uh, dying of cirrhosis to living a full life after a transplant. Uh, For the residents, I would encourage you to be involved with as many liver transplants as possible. Um, If your program offers an elective uh, in transplant, I would encourage you to do that and customize your experience so that you can see more of the um, behind the scenes 
work that happens with transplant. You can attend selection committee meetings and hear people talk about what makes someone a good candidate or not a good candidate and how you're trying to move people through the process. You can learn more about appropriately matching organs um, with the right recipient which was not something that I um, really appreciated before I um, started getting deeper into this role. And then it's also, I think, really important to know that UNOS um, requires that every liver transplant program have a director of transplant anesthesia. So that is something that every hospital with a transplant program must have. And that person is required to either have a critical care fellowship a cardiac anesthesia fellowship or a liver transplant anesthesia fellowship, which is um, not an ACGME fellowship, but something that's offered in a number of programs around the country. That's often um, a part-time attending position and a part-time liver transplant anesthesia fellow position. So if that's something that you think you might be interested in long-term, then I would encourage you to pursue one of those uh, fellowships to have the door open for you. Um, and then attending conferences. There's many different um, transplant um, societies and conferences. There's um, SADA, which is the Society for the Advancement of Transplant Anesthesia, which is a great resource um, and opportunities for residents and fellows to get involved. And then the International Liver Transplant Society is also another great opportunity that has um, multidisciplinary educational topics, conferences, um, journal articles, moderated journal clubs, uh, where you can learn more about the, the topic as well. Thank you for walking us through liver transplants. That was a fantastic look at uh, liver transplants from start to finish. I have one last question for you. Through your career, you've undoubtedly developed a unique style and set of practices that define your work. Could you share with us some of your personal style points or distinctive methods that you think contribute to your effectiveness and success in the operating room? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think there are a couple of different things. One, um, I really try to remember that what is a routine day for us is often the worst day in somebody else's life or a very stressful, scary day for them. So giving the patient and their family the grace to be upset or be snippy or be emotional, um, I try to take that in stride and also try to uh, put their mind at ease and develop a rapport as quickly as I can with them so that they trust me. Um, so I think that's one thing um, that I that I try to do with all of my patients. Um, another thing is that I have um, high expectations for myself and then for those that I'm working with. Um, we have a wonderfully fun, rewarding job, but it's also a serious job. Um, that we need to do uh, the best that we can uh, for the patient and their family. Um, so I expect people to, um, to do a good job, and I expect that of myself. Um, but I also want opportunities for, uh, for feedback and improvement, uh, not just for the trainee, but also for myself. So if someone catches something which has happened, I mean, um, we're human and can make mistakes too. So I want someone to give me that feedback or be open to saying, um, uh, did you mean to do that? That is an important part of taking good care of, of patients. And then I think another thing is um, 
I like efficiency. I don't, uh, I don't like redoing work. So if there's something that can be done one way, uh, take EKG leads, for example, that uh, you're only positioning them one time so that they are in the correct position for the ultimate surgical position of the patient, um, then I would rather do that instead of putting them on, taking them off, turning the patient, and then putting them on again, because that's wasted steps and time. Um, those are a couple of things that come to mind. I'm sure the residents could probably tell you others, but um, those are a couple that come to mind offhand. Well, thank you for sharing all that with us. Uh, I think that wraps up all the questions I had for you, but I really appreciate your time and thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's episode of Style Points. Having listened to a lot of podcasts in the past, I think I might be legally obligated to ask you to like and or subscribe. I'm still pretty new to this, so if you have feedback for me, please feel free to email me at stylepointspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.